and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, episode 22, Sansa 6, and Sansa A Game of Thrones outro. I am Chloe, one of your hosts. You can find me on the internet as at Arbor on Twitter and Tumblr. And I'm Eliana, the other one of your hosts. And you can find me as Glass Table Girl on the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit and the Maester Monthly podcast and on Twitter as Arithmetric. Thank you for joining us. We're feeling 22. Yeah, episode 22. Get it? Get it? <laughs> yeah, because it's a Taylor Swift song, and it's episode 22. Yeah, another another one. Oh my god, that's her thing. And by the end of our Sansa chapters, we're going to have a look, well, but by the end of this chapter, we're going to have a look what you made me do moment. Are we again? So, uh, yeah, nice. yeah. Another, why not? Another one. That's, that's DJ Khaled, though. <laughs> How have they not collaborated? All right, so. I don't know. So we're at the end of A Game of Thrones with Sansa. Uh, we do have a couple lightning rounds, though, still. But we will get to that after we go through our one email or tweet of note, which was not an email, not a tweet of note. <laughs> it's a note, I guess. It doesn't have to be, but we're going to make it a note. It didn't have a note, actually. It is a rating from iTunes. Mm-hmm. Eliana, do you want to describe what this rating is? Alright, so on iTunes, as you all know, you can leave us stars, I guess. And this bar, this bar is very much a light gray as opposed to dark gray. There's a small little blip next to this bar that only has one star next to it. And someone left us a one, a one star rating. Face me, you coward. Or maybe they have the maybe they have the system backwards, you know? Like how people think that Like we're their star. Yeah. We're the same no. <laughs> we're their Evangeline. Like in uh <laughs> I enjoy that you're trying to like soften me though. <laughs> like it's okay, Chloe. It's not for you, it's for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't care anything about these reviews. Yeah. That is kind of ironic, I guess, isn't it? So other than like this one star review, whatever. Um, we did also have something that doesn't always happen every week, and I find this to be so cool. So a we got a tweet from Ben Sale, whose whose uh, Twitter handle is Sale Ben, spelled S A Y L E. So it's like a sale in which things are discounted, but with a Y in it. Sale Ben says, at Nautacast, Aswaf, and at Girls Gone Canon inspired me to do a quick talk about Pycelle before I spend a whole week neck deep in articles for the PhD. So blame them for this awesome slash terrible take. And Ben Sale, who's we're going to now dox on this podcast, but he did it to himself. His username on Reddit is Quackadeus, wrote a post called The Grey's Sheep Pycelle Character Discussion. It's a really interesting discussion, a gray sheet or a red sheet or whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's about Pycelle's loyalties and what really drove him to be loyal toward Tywin and his entire personality. And that Jamie's first chapter in A Feast for Crows sums that up. He has that little passage back and forth with Maester Pycelle, where it's, I have served six kings, he told Jamie after the second service, while sniffing doubtfully about the corpse. But here before us lies the greatest man I ever knew. Lord Tywin wore no crown, yet he was all a king should be. And then he goes on to talk about Old Town, about the Grey Plague taking half of the city and three quarters of the citadel, of Lord Hightower burning every ship in the port, 
closing the gates, commanding guards to slay people who tried to flee, whether they were babies or women or men. On the very day that Lord Hightower opens the port, he gets dragged from his horse and they slit his throat and his young sons as well. So to this day, the ignorant in Old Town spit at the sound of his name, but Quentin Hightower did what was needed. Your father was that sort of man as well, a man who did what was needed. So that's kind of messed up, just putting that out there, because Tywin slaughtered people for the rule and for a king to ascend a throne. Quentin Hightower killed people so they would stop spreading disease. Mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty Which, different. like, I mean, feudalism is a disease, but whatever. Yeah, uh, it's different, but I do think it's an astute observation on the part of Quacadeus, a.k.a. Ben Sale. Yeah, and he also goes on that, like, to talk about how Pycelle would burn Edric Storm, mm-hmm. right? Like, he would have taken the ships from Marine. He would have killed the child hostages. He would have done the Red Wedding. Mm-hmm. Like, all with tears, but without a second thought. Because any man, and this is a great quote that Ben actually writes, any man who wouldn't has no right to power in his eyes. In other words, if we assume Tywin is a dark reflection on what Stannis could be, Pycelle is a dark reflection of what Davos could have been, hmm. post-knighting, etc. A man blinded by admiration to recognize the monster he believes the savior of the nation. Yeah, and... So it's a really just a really interesting good analysis. I I really like the Davos comparison. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm one person that definitely would never really shit on Davos. You know, Grandpa Davos. I can't wait to get to his chapters because he's oh my god, it's gonna be so good. Pretty much just like a good character. Yeah, he's a good guy, but it does kind of make you think of things in that light. Uh, had Davos, you know, not had his uh is a backbone if he had given up his backbone instead of his finger bones, you know? Yeah. It's interesting the way, the way that they talk about, like, Pycelle obviously seems to think that the killing of the Targaryen children are necessary to him, or sending hired knives across the sea to assassinate Daenerys, and I think the idea that it was informed by his experiences in Old Town during the Great Plague is an interesting connection you know, it goes back to how we were talking with uh, LML about all these different things that inform a character and who, that shape a person, right? The experiences that shape who they are. Yeah, and we're going to hear a lot about those experiences today in this last Sansa chapter. Mm-hmm. Well, not last forever, of course. We do have a Clash of Kings coming up. <laughs> and a Storm of Swords. And a Feast for Crows. And even... And wait, what? wait. Did you say, Eliana, what was that? What Was it... Was it, was that a wind that I heard? I felt the wind a rustle. Was it <laughs> a, the, the wind of winter? A gust, a gust of gins? I don't know. Never mind. That came out a lot better <laughs> in my head. I think we're going to have a slight breeze bringing us some Elaine Stone eventually. Exactly. We both love that chapter. <laughs> that, that's going to be a five hour episode. Oh my god. Yeah. Just dissecting all of it. I can't wait. Oh, I have so much to talk about. I can't even wait. Wow, that is going to be... But, of course, for now, we are staying in a Game of Thrones, and there was a lot between Sansa 5 and Sansa 6 that we need to cover. We'll skip a few of the outer chapters that don't really affect her that much, but here's what we missed in this week's lightning round. Oh my gosh. Again, how are we here again? Eddard 15... It's like the dream never stops, dude. Like, we're just reliving the nightmare. Which is exactly what happens in this chapter, you know? 
This is us. Varys visits Ned in the Black Cells, telling him that Sansa plans to plead for his life in front of the court. In Catelyn 9, Catelyn negotiates Rob's host crossing at the Green Fork with Walder Frey. Jair Mormont gives John a very special sword against his protests, and Maester Aemon gives John a lesson in empathy, revealing that he is the son of King Makar the First. Maker's Mark. <laughs> Yum. I still prefer Aemon booze. Oh yeah, the Aemon. I should bring that again. That was not a great shot or cocktail, but I'm going to do that again this year. Make it better next time. Whatever. Oh my god. In Catelyn 10, Rob has led his host to Riverrun, and Catelyn waits with her guards while her son ambushes the Lannister army. Rob holds Jamie as a captive, but several members of the Stark army die. Arya 5. Catching up with Arya, Arya has been surviving on the streets, hunting pigeons. <laughs> she ends up in the crowded yeah. Baylor Sept and watches her father confess his quote-unquote treason. She tries to climb her way through the crowd to him, but Yorin stops her and takes her with him. Question, do you think that Arya is secretly now Lil Pigeon? Yes. Oh, they're going to have a rap battle. She and Lil Pigeon oh my for the God. name. I can't wait for season eight. <laughs> Where Arya and Lil Pigeon duke it out for the name. <laughs> oh my God, I want art of this now. Just an actual, like, oversized, human-sized pigeon wearing a backwards baseball cap, like, holding a microphone with his feathers off. Oof. Oh, so, on Maester Monthly, Michael shared a story where he and Sanrixian were at Con of Thrones and drunk, and Sanrixian saw a pigeon being beat up by other pigeons, so she picked up the pigeon and moved it away so it wouldn't get beaten up. And someone in the comments later was like, oh, Sanrixian sigil is a pigeon. It's so cute, though, like her. Yeah, wow. it's the most pure story. In Bran 7, Bran and Rickon share a dream of their father in the crypts of Winterfell before Maester Lewin receives the news. And that brings us to Sansa Stark 6. Life is not a song as Sansa learns to her sorrow. In a dark room, Sansa grieves the murder of her father until the prince, now king, comes calling for her to get pretty, abusing her each time she displeases him. He takes her to the top of a tower to see Ned once more, where for a brief moment Sansa gets the courage to fly her cage and take Joffrey with her, before returning to being a lady. Sansa finds herself once more in the tower in Magor's Holdfast. She's drowning in her grief, and dishes of spoiled food are littering and climbing the room. Servants periodically clear them. Like, they keep going back, picking them up, and clearing them. Like, a total TV montage. She's depressed, right? Like, if you've ever been depressed, you'll totally get this mood. Which, I mean, she has every right to be. Mm -hmm, absolutely. It's... It's sad, man. Sansa sleeps on and off, sometimes dreamless, and none of her dreams are refreshing. She sometimes likes the dreams, though, because she gets to see her father, but then they suck because she dreams of her father dying when she does dream, and she also sees the same horror when she's awake and sees it when she's not. So she's just kind of seeing him dying all over and over again. It's like a shitty Groundhog Day. Her prince had smiled at her. He smiled and she'd felt safe, but only for a heartbeat until he said those words. And her father's legs, that was what she remembered. His legs, the way they jerked when Sir Illyn, when the sword, 
Perhaps I will die too, she told herself, and the thought did not seem so terrible to her. If she flung herself from the window, she could put an end to her suffering, and in the years to come, the singers would write songs of her grief. Her body would lie on the stones below, broken and innocent, shaming those who had betrayed her. Sansa went so far as to cross the bedroom and throw open the shutters. But then her courage left her, and she ran back to her bed, sobbing. Totally some Helena Targaryen and Ashara Dane vibes happening in this passage. In fact, Sansa finds herself at a crossroads, almost in a situation similar to Helena, which we hear about her in The Princess and the Queen, for the most part, begging for mercy for someone, but being served no true mercy. Though blood and cheese had spared her life, Queen Helena cannot be said to have survived that fateful dusk. Afterwards, she would not eat nor bathe nor leave her chambers, and she could no longer stand to look upon her son Naylor, knowing that she had named him to die. So I love that passage mm -hmm. because obviously Sansa didn't name her father to die, although her words helped to condemn him in the end. Mm -hmm. And another passage that totally reminds me of it. That very day, not long after sunset, another horror visited the queen's court. Helena Targaryen, sister, wife, and queen, to King Aegon II and mother of his children, threw herself from her window in Maegor's holdfast to die impaled upon the iron spikes that lined the dry moat below. She was but one in twenty. So had Sansa been forced to stay longer than she had to in King's Landing, and had the original timeline gone on for her to wed Joffrey and bear his children, we may have seen her turn into something like Queen slash Princess Helena, right? We may have seen her go from being who she was, you know, the highborn girl from the North that loved the South and slowly turn into just like an empty shell of a being and possibly even throw herself out of her tower. Mm -hmm. But though I am very glad that that's like not how the story went. Like Sansa's is just so young and I don't know, believing that killing herself would shame all those around her. I don't know. Maybe it would have because she is very highborn, but I don't, I don't know, like, it works well enough for the way Ashara Dane is portrayed, and as you pointed out, like, all of these stories are remembered about Helena Targaryen, but I wonder if, like, no, it could have ended up with no one paying attention to Sansa's death either, like, much like how she says that there were no songs sung for Sir Hugh of the Vale when he died, how many people would, like, actually write any about her? Like, how many people die throughout this entire series? And so for so many of them, no songs are sung for them. There are no songs about Ned. Yeah, a lot of these people die. Like, we would probably die. No song. Are you telling me you wouldn't write a song for me if I did? I'd write, I'd write one for you. I mean, I would. Hers is the song of Locusts and Bellwash. Yeah, I'd write a song for you. Hers is a song of Sandor and Ashara, but not together. <laughs> Yeah, that's a weird ship. Let's move on. <laughs> so we also learned that, like, you know, as Sansa's father, as Ned was thrown down for the punishment, Sansa keeps thinking about how she couldn't look away, which, of course, mirrors that language in Sansa too, bringing it back again to Sir Hugh of the Vale, and how Sansa kept thinking that, oh, it was so strange that she couldn't look away from Sir Hugh's body. But obviously, as we know from Arya's chapter, where Sansa's screaming that it was a completely different it was a completely different reaction. We have this entire chapter here where her reaction is very different from the way that Sir Hugh died. And also the way that this is written, you know, we kept stopping before Sansa talks about Ned's actual beheading. And it's written 
in some ways, the way that Ned's chapters are written, right? Like, Ned's chapter skips over the actual beheading of Lady the Wolf. We never actually see Lyanna Stark and think about her actually dying. We don't see that scene. Same as how Sansa cannot bear to actually relive and think the words of what happened when Ned died and was beheaded. Yeah, the construction of these chapters are very similar. It's very much so start in the aftermath of what just happened and slowly recant what actually happened. Mm-hmm. And of course, Sansa's chapters are how we know that, I guess, Ned's actually dead. Yeah, it's the confirmation. Yeah, because before this, you're all like, oh, no, our hero's going to make it out. He's a pigeon. Yeah, he, he, he worked into ice. It's fine. Sansa refuses to speak to the serving girls who come to visit her. And they try to talk to her sometimes when they bring her meals. That's a total role reversal, right, from the last chapter? Sansa pulled major Ariane moves and tried to get the servants to talk to her mm-hmm. last chapter, but now she wants absolutely nothing to do with them or food or anyone. And she's not wrong also in her observation that part of why she doesn't speak want to speak to them, A, she's super depressed and in mourning, but she's also like, no, those are Lannister servants. No one, I have no one here. No one's loyal to me. And then a Grand Maester Pycelle comes in on one of these days and he has... Sansa's bedmaid hold her down while he touches her all over, asking if she's ill. That is, like, such an overlooked small sentence, and it's so gross that I want to highlight the actual words from the passage here. Mm-hmm. Once Grandmaster Pycelle came with a box of flasks and bottles to ask if she was ill, he felt her brow, made her undress, and touched her all over while her bedmaid held her down. Yeah, it's, uh, it's... That's a little quick, little molesty. Yeah, it's very subtle. But with the way that the rest of Sansa's storyline goes, the insinuation, I think, is definitely there. Um, Especially during this time when she's catatonic. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing. She's like catatonic and depressed right now. She doesn't even know what's happening or what has happened. It's that unreliable narratorness. And she's right. She doesn't ever think about this again or whatever because everything else that happens to her is also awful yeah she ends up shutting a lot of it out which is something we will go into in further episodes part of that trauma for sansa comes from ill and pain of course she's dreaming of ill and pain he's coming for her with ice to take her head she woke murmuring please please i'll be good i'll be good please don't but there was no one to hear (sighs) so that foreboding chill you, you can just feel it feel it that chapter is actually, that passage of the chapter is really beautiful, too. It just has so much imagery in it and scary and kind of like you can feel the dream. Mm-hmm. In real life, Joffrey is who actually comes for Sansa in her chamber with Sandor at his side. Sansa is curled up in a ball. She has her curtains drawn. She has no clue what time of day it is. Jealous. She stays curled up when they enter and they slam open the curtains, which is like completely rude. Yeah, and also, I don't know, he's just coming in like, whatever, I'm over this. Yeah. Because Joffrey decides he's going to come in here, and he commands Sansa to bathe and dress and attend his court today, which, like, you're not my dad, Joffrey. (laughs) Man, that's a total boyfriend move. Like, we are going in public, you are taking a shower, anyway. Mm, Yeah, right. (laughs) Right, they would never. I would never shower. (laughs) Same. Sansa begs him no, and he commands Sandor to get her up. Do as you're bid, child. Dress. 
He pushed her toward her wardrobe almost gently. Sandor starts to not only look like the kinder option at this point to the men in chainmail that have been guarding her, which who's ever said that, right? But by chapter's end, he's even the most preferred. I also think a lot of this kind of soft contrast has to do with the language George uses to establish Sandor's outfits, believe it or not. He spends a really ridiculous amount of time on the Kingsguard armor, which we get those snowy, scaly pieces of shit people, whatever. But Sandor's plain woolen model sticks out like a sore thumb, especially in King's Landing, and especially as a direct echo of him refusing to take his nightly vows like Dunk the Lunk, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely a parallel to Dunk never truly being knighted in a way, but of course being the most true knight there is, which we, we can talk about this another day, but it's just an interesting little snippet. Yeah, Sandra's not pretending to be anyone that he's not. In, in, in right. his, his clothing points that out, and I'll, we'll come back to that a little more with, like, fucking Sermeran Trant. He needs to go, like, fall in, I don't know, 20 holes. Ugh. Sansa tells him that she did what she was told to do. She sent the letters... He promised to be merciful. She begs him to let her go home, that she'll be good. She won't do any treasons. She, of course, finishes this rant with a courteous, as it please you. And in doing all this, like, Sansa's desperate here. She now knows that being good isn't going to save her. But from this and from earlier, her yelling, like, please, please, I'll be good. Like, you can see that she's still, like, hoping giving human decency and mercy one last shot that, like, maybe if she's good, like, nothing's going to happen. But obviously, that's not the case. The gods aren't good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it is a waste of courtesy because Joffrey turns around and he's such a dickbag, right? Like, he's all, well, mother says I have to marry you, so you have to obey me. And she doesn't want to marry him. She literally screams, like, you chopped off my dad's head. Yeah, like, I don't understand how he doesn't understand. Like, there's just a strange disconnect, and Joffrey just doesn't seem to understand it. Because Joffrey's like, uh, you were lucky, right? He Joffrey begins to tell her that she's lucky because he gave Ned a clean death, as opposed to torturing him. And Sansa thinks that she's seeing Joffrey for the first time. Sansa stared at him, seeing him for the first time. He was wearing a padded crimson doublet patterned with lions and a cloth of gold cape with a high collar that framed his face. She wondered how she could ever have thought him handsome. His lips were as soft and red as the worms you found after a rain, and his eyes were vain and cruel. Hate you, she whispered. King Joffrey's face hardened. My mother tells me that it isn't fitting that a king should strike his wife. Sir Marin. The knight was on her before she could think, yanking back her hand as she tried to shield her face and backhanding her across the ear with a gloved fist. Sansa did not remember falling, yet the next she knew, she was sprawled on one knee amongst the rushes. Her head was ringing. Sir Marin Trant stood over her with blood on the knuckles of his white silk glove. Dude, he had blood on his glove. Like, mm -hmm. and the that's... A glove fist. like It's going all, along with what you're saying, a glove fist. A, first of all, why did he have to go for her face? He moved your hands away from her face, right? Like other, right. later on, we're going to see some of them like hit her in the stomach, which none of the parts are good. Don't, why would you do that? But also like. Don't get it twisted. But like the face, that's the moneymaker. That's the start. Money it's maker. not just that. It's also like, this is 
this is what every the realm was going to see. It looks bad for yeah. you. And as you were saying about clothing earlier and what Sandor wears, like, this is an obvious sort of imagery that George is using to tell that story of how shitty the Knights of the King's Guard are, right? Like, because it's not just blood on the, like, a mailed glove. It's on his white silk glove. It's that blood marring the purity of that whiteness and that honor. Yeah, we see a lot of stained white on the King's Guard. There's also some Robert and Cersei introspective bits here, right? Because this is, of course, the chapter where Sansa's world gets shattered, and it all starts to make sense, especially as we get toward the end of this chapter, where Joffrey says something that will dawn on Sansa and us as the reader like a bucket of ice water about his mother and her viewpoint on her. There's a line that it makes me think of in Eddard 13, of course, where Eddard and Cersei are in the godswood discussing Robert beating her. Ned touched her cheek gently. Has he done this before? Once or twice, she shied away from his hand. Never on the face before. Jamie would have killed him, even if it meant his own life. Cersei looked at him defiantly. My brother is worth a hundred of your friend. And of course, there's the passage in Jamie 9 in A Storm of Swords. Oh, don't be absurd, Cersei closed the window. Yes, I hoped the boy would die. So do you. Even Robert thought that he would have been for the best. We kill our horses when they break a leg and our dogs when they go blind, but we are too weak to give the same mercy to crippled children, he had told me. He was blind himself at the time from drink. Robert? Jamie had guarded the king long enough to know Robert Baratheon said things in his cups he would have denied angrily the next day. Were you alone when Robert said this? So the whole idea of Joffrey being the one that sent the cat spa after Bran that's confirmed in the World of Ice and Fire app uh, to attempt to get a pat on the back from his dad, right? And of course, the idea that Cersei would have told him kings don't beat their woman. Like, that's not a kingly thing to do, Joffrey. Like, that's the compromise he comes to. It, it, it's completely in character for the little psycho. I absolutely agreed. It's very... It's never really stated outright, right? But it's something that you definitely catch on rereads that so much of Joffrey's cruelty is attributed to Cersei and, of course, the cruelty that we see from the Lannisters. But the abusive nature that Joffrey shows to Sansa is learned from Robert. Robert's actions towards Cersei are what normalized it. And Ro Cersei's saying, as you pointed out, like Cersei's saying that kings ought not stri strike their wives or shouldn't hit their wives is him saying it in reaction to Robert hitting her. It's her complaining about it. And this is just, this is the household that Joffrey grew up in. Yeah, just like we noticed during the feast when they go to leave the feast when his parents start fighting and he just freezes up completely. Yeah, so Joffrey thinks this is the way that things are supposed to be, I guess. It's not right, it's really terrible, but this is not learned from Cersei. Not completely. The, the Yeah, the manipulative part. The perversion of it, the loophole that he sees in it, right, is a lesson that he Very took sense. from Cersei's words, and maybe that's like a Cersei thing to think of and do, but the actual intent behind it is Robert. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, Sansa thinks that Joffrey's lips look like little worms, 
And I think that there's so- this is probably just a co- this is probably just a coincidence and I think George likes the idea of I don't know horrible people having lips that look like worms, but it it's not the only time that George uses this imagery to describe an abusive person because Theon thinks of Ramsay uh, when he meets Ramsay, who's masquerading as Reek in a similar fashion. His lips look like two worms fucking. And, yeah. Yeah, there's literally the only two times that that's referenced are Theon and Sansa in their chapters. That's the only two times lips are called worms. Which I guess in some ways they kind of are, you know? Yeah, I get it. I Hashtag get it. not all lips? I don't know. Sure. Did you have some worm facts for us, Aliana? People who pay one dollar get hashtag worm facts. Yeah, they do. (laughs) Joffrey tells Sansa that he expects her to be in court later this afternoon. And before Sandor leaves, he imparts some words of wisdom on Sansa, which echo throughout the rest of the chapter. Sir Marin and Sir Aerys followed him out, but Sandor Clegane lingered long enough to yank her roughly to her feet. Save yourself some pain, girl, and give him what he wants. What? What does he want? Please tell me. He wants you to smile and smell sweet and be his lady love. He wants to hear you recite all your pretty little words the way the Septon taught you. He wants you to love him and fear him. And spoiler alert. All of this and a lot of the things that happen in this chapter in summation is what the patriarchy wants from women. They want the women to smile and they want them to lift up the shitty men and please them in hopes that they're not going to hurt us. That's why you know, people act nice even though when they're scared, especially women. But guess what? They still act shitty. Tear down the patriarchy. Tear it down. Burn it all down. Dance on its ashes. Later, Sansa's bedmaids warily enter her bedchamber and she tells them that she will need powder, perfume, and hot water for her bath. She decides to play along. She decides to make herself beautiful, anything to avoid more of these beatings. She thinks on Winterfell in the hot water, remembering the springs, and she takes strength from it. It's also been, like, a week since her dad died, and she hasn't had a single bath since, so, like, all the dirt's coming off, all the grime, all the blood. It's pretty cool, right? She's been in her room. There's probably not that much. Well, she says there's a ton of dirt, though. I mean, it's over a week's worth. She dresses up once she's nice and clean in her green silk dress from the tourney, thinking it may soften Joffrey to her. As we mentioned in the tourney episode, her green silk dress is her finest dress she owns, right? Like, that is the nice dress. It's expensive, it's made of silk, it's vibrant, and she looks beautiful and resplendent in it. She is totally, like, using this as her last call, her last, like, hope. Like, maybe, just maybe, this will make my life easier. It doesn't. Spoiler. Spoiler alert, it doesn't. Sir Marin comes for her in his white and gold armor, and he acts courteously toward her as if he hadn't, like, fucking beaten her earlier. (laughs) And Sansa asks him if Joffrey told him to hit her, if she refuses to come to court, and Sir Marin's like, uh, so are you refusing? And then Sansa realizes that Sir Marin neither hates nor loves her, that she's just simply an object to him. No, she said, rising. She wanted to rage, to hurt him as he'd hurt her, to warn him that when she was queen, she would have him exiled if he ever dared strike her again. But she remembered what the hound had told her, so all she said was, 
I shall do whatever his grace commands. As do I, he replied. Yes, but you are no true knight, Sir Marin. Sandor Clegane would have laughed at that, Sansa knew. I love that line. It's just a very, like, it's like Sansa finally is like, she puts on, like, a leather jacket and some sunglasses. Mm -hmm. She's like, I'm on, walk on the dark side now. Like, I get the hound now. I get it. Fuck, fuck the patriarchy. Fuck, fuck feudalism. I'm over it. Yeah. I'm over it. Fuck a Lannister dog. Fuck a Lannister. Fuck a Lannister. Like, what, what has she got to lose? She's just like, whatever. Fuck you, Sir Baron Trant. And I think, I don't know, Sir Baron Trant's just like, what? <laughs> it goes over his head. Um, I do also wonder if we should be reading this, like, as this gradual decay or, like, degradation of the Order of the Kingsguard since the time of Ares II. Because, like, very pointedly, and it's a very much impactful when we see in, like, Jamie's chapters how he questions Gerald Hightower, right? It was Gerald um, when they were standing outside of Ares's room as he's raping Ra Rayella, and he's just like, Are shouldn't we be protecting her too? And he's questioning that, uh, of course, and Gerald's like, uh, yeah, but not not from him. But it it advances it by this time in the story. Like, in A Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords, we see that the Kingsguard aren't just standing idly by anymore, but they're following the orders to the extent of, like, they're assaulting and, like, hurting Sansa themselves. They're sexually assaulting her when they're, like, told later on to, like, tear her clothes off. And they're just doing all this under the guise of just following orders. Yeah, and interestingly enough, following that, like, there was no one for the Kingsguard, right? Like, half the Kingsguard died mm -hmm. in the Rebellion. And so Robert opens up, and what choices does he have? He doesn't really have a lot of choice on good knights, right? There's just not a lot of people around that are Kingsguard-worthy. So, I mean, the crowd that you're left with at the start of A Game of Thrones is all up-jumped, like, gross, you know, like, street rats. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, Robert's Rebellion is in some ways cleared house yeah it's in some ways supposed to be read as you know there was an age of heroes many hundreds of years ago but robert's rebellion is also in many ways the story of the death of the age of heroes oh, yeah. who i guess weren't that heroic because they just like sit around and shit too but anyways you heroes are going to disappoint you every time yep. sansa stands in the balcony with her head bowed and she's fighting back tears Joffrey sat on his throne below, and he's holding court. He's bored by most cases, and he just, like, has the small council handle them. And he just, like, fidgets and is, like, super weird about it and bored while they decide how they're going to rule. The only cases that he does rule on, though, no one's able to sway him. He decides to have a thief's hand chopped off by Sir Illyn in court. It's a very dad vote kind of thing. Yeah. So wait, you mean good King Joffrey, the just king? Yeah. Joffrey Baratheon, like Stannis Baratheon, yeah. but better. Yeah. Obviously, I mean, and I'm gonna we're gonna come back to another one of these things like in a second, like how Joffrey's stuff. Like, I mean, obviously Joffrey's just following his uncle Stannis's role here, right? Yeah, he's using his uncle Stannis as a role map. Welcome to Girls Gone Trolling. <laughs> I give it two hours. <laughs> two hours after it's up before they get with us. Uh, all right. Two and another thing. <laughs> and another thing. Two nights. 
bring a land dispute before Joffrey, and so Joffrey has him duel to the death for it the next day. Oh, what a nice boy. Yeah. That that makes Aww. sense to me. Did you get any kittens lately, Joffrey? Okay. Uh... A woman comes to court pleading for the head of a man she loved who was executed as a traitor, and he has her carried off to the dungeons, calling her a traitor herself. Which is, like, first off, an obvious Ned comparison, but secondly, was this lady, like, just not at Baylor's Sept last week, right? Like, she she must have just missed that news somehow, like... yeah. Like, traitors aren't really a thing around the castle right now. There's no mercy for traitors, right? Like, Yeah, was this woman, like, not on social media? Was she not on her Twitter? Didn't she see what happened last week? Like, you don't just come in here rolling up and be like, oh, we love traitors. Tra- not traitors. Traitors. <laughs> yeah, she just shows up and it's just all of us are like, nope, that's not, it's not in this week. Not in. Oh, there she goes. A tavern singer sings a song ridiculing King Robert for dying because of a pig, but alludes to Cersei as the pig. Joffrey has him decide within the next day whether he wants to keep his tongue or his voice. Truly merciful, you know. (laughs) Yes, Joffrey the merciful. There are more Hedge Knight vibes here, since we're drawing comparisons. You know, like how Arian Brightflame sought to harm Tansel Too Tall for that play. I did think that play was suspicious, though, which may have been a critique of the Targaryen regime. I was like, girl, what are you (laughs) doing? What is this? Wait, you think the play was like overarching meta-commentary on the current political regime, then? Oh! Wait, are you being sarcastic? I... I would never. <laughs> you would never! <laughs> I'm confused. I was being sarcastic. Okay. Obviously, yes. that play was suspect. <laughs> that play was very suspect. Um, <laughs> so, obviously, though, but, like, Joffrey, as... Because we would never be sarcastic, um, isn't merciful here. But I just want to, like, say some, uh, make a spicy take in contextualizing this mercy or lack of mercy on Joffrey's part. Because he's critiquing, right, he, he's punishing a singer who's critiquing his father, whom, as we know, he idolized, and maybe his mother? Though, questions, do you think Joffrey even catches that the pig might be, the boar might be alluding to Cersei, considering that Sansa picks it up, but we know Joffrey's not great with abstract not. he's not great with abstract thought he's not great with thought that's true uh but anyway so regarding Tyrion, Tyrion has a, there's a singer right simon silvertongue and who writes a song that Tyrion doesn't like and Tyrion does not chop off the singer's hands or his tongue he has the singer killed dismembered and distributed into various stews i'm just gonna say it in this moment Tyrion is worse than joffrey and just gonna say it. Yes, but I do also want to put out there, like, yes, it's not good. It doesn't make it good. But I do want to say there was more motive behind sure. it. Sure. More than just, like, he was annoyed by it. It was also, like, he didn't want that word of his family getting out. So it was interesting because it is Tyrion showing what a Lannister he is. And that he mm-hmm. does have that Lannister pride because it's what he clings to. Because he has to. Yeah. It's that. <laughs> he has nothing else. Ruthlessness that characterizes the Lannister family. And one last random thought. I don't know what this song sounds like. I don't know what the lyrics are. But um, it is interesting that 
the song does allude to Cersei being the boar, the pig, because the death of Robert Baratheon to me feels very reminiscent of the myth of like the death of Adonis. If you guys don't know it, look up the myth, the the story of Venus and Adonis. Adonis was also killed by a boar, but as he died, the goddess like Venus, who loved him, she wept for him. And there's some really interesting playfulness here in the way that George is channeling that and like being a little magpie and like pulling creativity from different places and incorporating that into Robert's storyline. And I think there's in there's something interesting by conflating that boar and the wife and conflating, you know, in a way, conflating that boar and Venus, who is supposed to be so beautiful that and that's obviously how Cersei is very much described, especially because we know that Cersei is partially responsible for Robert's death. Frog-faced Lord Slint sat at the end of the council table wearing a black velvet doublet and a shiny cloth of gold cape, nodding with approval every time the king pronounced a sentence. Sansa stared hard at his ugly face, remembering how he had thrown down her father for Sir Illyn to behead, wishing she could hurt him, wishing that some hero would throw him down and cut off his head. But a voice inside her whispered, there are no heroes, and she remembered what Lord Peter had said to her here in this very hall. Life is not a song, sweetling, he told her. You may learn that one day to your sorrow. In life, the monsters win, she told herself, and now it was the hound's voice she heard, a cold rasp, metal on stone. Save yourself some pain, girl, and give him what he wants. So, this is John's a foreshadowing, right? A sarcasm, right? Is this a John's a foreshadowing? I'm gonna, oh, I'm yeah. gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, what is this word that I'm looking for? Shatter some worldviews here. Because I do see this, actually, this uh, passage come up a lot when people talk about George R. R. Martin writing foreshadowing. But... Actually, it isn't. It was actually just a fun coincidence that happened to be written in because in an original draft of the chapter that George R. R. Martin read of, what is it, John 3, Dance, he read that chapter actually at Technicon, a convention in 2008. And in fact, in the original draft, John had hanged Janoslint as the text has John starting to do as it shows. And as a fan pointed out, a couple of fans actually pointed this out, that it's it's uncharacteristic of John, who's raised in the North by Ned Stark, to hang Janos Slint. So the chapter was changed from since that draft in 2008 to the final version that we have in Dance, where Ned John beheads Janos, which goes to show that sometimes the foreshadowing is actually just serendipity. Like, George R. R. Martin obviously thinks deeply about his story, but not every one of the words is sacred. Not all of it is planned out or like some sort of scripted like, oh, it's this is meaningful and definitely going to come into play later. Sometimes he doesn't. I mean, he has to have Elio and Linda help him remember all the things. The The horses are changing sex. The eye colors are changing. Jane Westerling's hips. What are they like? Anyway, the point is. I mean, yeah. yeah, but at the same time, like, and I, I was really being sarcastic I, when I was like, is it foreshadowing Janza? I don't think necessarily it's foreshadowing. I don't think it's foreshadowing Sansa. But in a way, yeah, I mean, it, it, either way, obviously, Janos Slint was going to die. Oh, yeah. Someone was going to kill him. I don't think it has to be beheading. I don't think it has to be one of the other ways, but 
it's fitting that John, who becomes the hero archetype of the story, mm-hmm. obviously, is a hero that kills this evil man. And I think we're going to see this happen with a lot of other people, which if the show's anything similar, which we don't know, it probably won't be the exact same, obviously won't happen in the same place, but Arya might end up taking out Marin Trant. That's another hero killing one of these evil people that beat the crap out of Sansa or ruined her family's life, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, I, I just think there's maybe like a heroes over the bad guy power shift. I don't, I wouldn't say it's necessarily foreshadowing, but I wouldn't say that there's nothing there. Like it doesn't have to be like, yeah, he didn't think about it, but I think that's more him writing as Sansa and her flowery language of, I wish a hero would behead him because Sansa obviously would think this person would be beheaded because that's how she's seen justice doled out. And that's how justice is doled out in the North. Mm -hmm. And I don't disagree with that. I do think that there is, and of course I have a hope that all of the shitty people in this chapter like Janos and Marin will get what's coming to them. We see it happen to Joffrey. This idea of maybe justice like eventually coming for them. I just think that what fans point out so often is that Sansa wants a hero to behead him and then they point out the language of, oh, and then Jon beheads him. That wasn't it wasn't like directly planned by George R. R. Martin from the beginning in that way, like to be that perfect mirror. Yeah, it was a nice parallel, just wasn't planned so. Yeah. And of course, like who knew that's where he'd end up, you know, etc. So George knew where he might end up and he could possibly kill him. So it's interesting to look at. Mm-hmm. I'd also like to point out that she gets her two mentors, the Hound first, then Peter, giving her life advice from her memories in this passage. And it's something that she actually ends up harnessing during her captivity at King's Landing. It's what keeps her going. Sansa feels relief as the last case of the day is heard. She flees to the balcony, only to find Joffrey waiting for her at the bottom of the stairs with the Hound and Sir Marin Trant. It's like The Shining. Uh, Joffrey makes her walk with him, telling Sansa that she looks much better than earlier. And I know, right? You look more like an asshole than earlier, Joffrey. Sansa thinks that Joffrey makes her skin crawl now, where once taking his arm would have excited her, and Joffrey asks her what she's going to give him for his name day. Sansa tells him that she had not thought, my lord, and he verbally chastises her for calling him my lord instead of your grace, which she did earlier on in her chambers as well. Which, of course, A, masculinity's fragile, beads it's also totally plays into his rumors of his birth and his unstable rule as a bastard right Mm -hmm. and also you definitely see that that the you know no man who says he's the king is a king kind of thing Mm -hmm. definitely because he's a butt joffrey tells sansa that she's stupid and that his mother is right uh, and that Cersei's always saying it, that Sansa's stupid. And Sansa feels crestfallen, because after all that had happened, she had thought that Cersei still had her back. But, you know, Sansa was wrong, obviously, about <laughs> this. Uh, she murmurs her courtesies at him and thinks that the Hound is right. She's only a little bird repeating the words that they taught her. And the language here when she goes, oh, she does, regarding when she finds out Cersei thinks she's dumb. It's like the same incredulous in the previous chapter or no no two chapters ago right where cersei's like oh you know that the prince and i love you and she's like oh you do like oh worm <laughs> wormst worms worm facts yeah it's it, it, after the last build-up of trust after cersei really you know like played her 
got her to do her bidding, which, you know, like we see with Ariane and Marcella, mm-hmm. uh, where Ariane is lying to Marcella to get what she needs. Cersei lies to Sansa to get what she needs. Anything to get those letters written, drafted out, sent. Like, she has a totally different long game than the chaos that Joffrey is playing. And it's not just that, because she's also like, Sansa, we went over this. Your dad's a traitor, like, when Sansa comes forth in the middle of everything. She's just trying to get Sansa to, like, shut the fuck up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Joffrey asks Sansa when she's going to flower, kind of bluntly, and he plans to get her a child immediately. He tells her that if their child isn't satisfactory, he'll chop off her head and find a smarter wife. She tells him she doesn't know, that she's not sure, but most highborn girls flower at 12 or 13, and she feels ashamed by the language he's using and how he's approaching her with this. It's very discourteous, not not ladylike or not lordly, whatever, you know? Yeah, you don't, it doesn't matter what era you're in, you don't just walk up to a lady and ask when she's going to bleed and if you can knock her up. Yeah, or just in general, you know, like, only girls get to do that to each other, like, yo, are you on your period right now? I don't know. When's your next moon blood? Yeah, when's your next moon blood? You need a tampon? I got tampons, I got you, girl. It's the only time you can do it. Anyway. Joffrey leads Sansa to the gatehouse and then to the stairs that lead up to the battlements and then Sansa realizes where they're going and she tries to jerk away but Joffrey won't let her. I want to show you what happens to traitors. Ah, uh, wormy little fuck. He tells her to do as he says although she's cringing into him and backing away from him and the hound gently pushes her toward the king telling her to just fucking do it. Sansa thinks that she can almost hear the rest. He'll have you up there no matter what, so give him what he wants. And so Sansa forces herself to take his hand and climb the stairs, and she can see everything from the battlements at the gatehouse. She sees the Sept of Baylor, where her father died. She sees the Street of the Sisters, among the black ruins of the Dragon Pit, which, hey, a Dragon Pit mention. That's the only other a Game of Thrones mention we get of it, uh, which is the other is Cat's King's Landing chapter. Almost the exact same language is used. The Gate of the Gods, the Salt Sea at her back, the Fish Market south of that, the Blackwater Rush, and then she looks north, wistfully toward Winterfell and thinks about home. Oh. I know, my baby. Joffrey snaps at her. That's not what I wanted you to He's like, what are you looking at? Like, <laughs> I'm sorry, did you not, has he never been up here before? Has he not looked at all the other things? I, I honestly think he hasn't. He's only looked up here to look at dead heads. Um, Joffrey directs Sansa toward the Iron Spikes, which Sansa's been avoiding looking at. He can make me look at the heads, she told herself, but he can't make me see them. She totally takes strength in this scene, Mm -hmm. right? Like, she's thinking about home. She's like, I'm not gonna let- I got all dressed up. I'm not gonna let him, you know, do this to me. He shows her her father's head and makes Sandor turn her to look at it. The head's been dipped in tar, so it doesn't even look like him. Sansa looks at it really calmly, asking him how long he'd like her to look. She's acting really unimpressed, right? Like, this is like Joffrey's juvenile. He's like, I want you to come see the dead thing I got dead. Like, he's just like a little kid. He's disappointed, to say the least, about it, and asks her if she'd like to see the rest. She's really strong here. Like, I'm really proud of her here. Yeah, and this is Sansa doing what she has to do in a lot of the following chapters, where it's full of this, like, inner resilience and rebellion. Right, and just not giving in, just subtly not giving Joffrey what he wants so he doesn't realize 
she, you know, she's not she's just not responding to the trolls. She's not taking the bait. Not at all. Joffrey shows her Septimordain and a bunch of other people from her house's service, and all of them are unrecognizable because their heads have been dipped into tar. Sansa wondered what had happened to Septimordain, but she thinks that deep down she knew all along. She asks why Joffrey had her killed, because Septimordain was Godsworn. She's a holy woman. I shouldn't speak ill of the dead. She's a holy woman, not taking care of Sansa and getting drunk at the feast, whatever. And I mean, I would be too. Let's be yeah, real. that's true. Uh, Joffrey responds that Septimordain was a traitor. He tells her maybe he should give her something on his name day. He tells her that her brother is a traitor. He says the Hound called him Lord of the Wooden Sword, but the Hound doesn't remember, so to say. And also just doesn't give a flying fuck about the conversation. Joffrey gave a petulant shrug. Your brother defeated my Uncle Jamie. My mother says it was treachery and deceit. She wept when she heard. Women are all weak. Even her, though she pretends she isn't. She says we need to stay in King's Landing in case my other uncles attack. But I don't care. After my name day feast, I'm going to raise a host and kill your brother myself. That's what I'll give you, Lady Sansa, your brother's head. A kind of madness took over her then, and she heard herself say, Maybe my brother will give me your head. Joffrey scowled. You must never mock me like that. A true wife does not mock her lord. Sir Marin, teach her. Sir Marin strikes her across the face, twice on each side. Why does he keep going for the face? And... Like, Joffrey's perfectly content with all the other parts of her body anyways, and Sansa's lips splits, and blood runs down her chin. And Joffrey tells Sansa that she's prettier when she smiles and laughs. Don't tell me to smile. And that she shouldn't be crying all the time. Joffrey tells Sansa to wipe the blood off of her face. And honestly, Chloe, in the scene, you didn't touch on this, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, it's interesting, you know? That you didn't touch on how, like, when Joffrey says that the Hound made fun of Rob when they were at Winterfell, which I'm, I'm sure the Hound did. I'm sure the Hound remembers it. But because he doesn't want to seem like a dick to Sansa, who's obviously suffering enough, and, like, Sander kind of pities her for having to go through all this bullshit, he says, like, oh, oh, did I say that? Like, I didn't recall. And it softens himself a little to Sansa and to us, but it also totally undercuts Joffrey's joke. Instead of going in on it like yeah you're gonna bring back her father's head it's no longer that um sander takes away some of that power from joffrey's joke here and he kind of does it just for sansa's sake yeah i've been trying to uh, keep a little light on the sandor analysis lately because you know yeah we got a whole clash of kings to get through yeah you're bringing in the johnson you're bringing in the johnson yeah, set i know I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm, I'm a split on the two, so it's very hard, very hard. But he does do that. He does undercut that. At the same time, I do think I could hear Sandor just bullshitting, saying that because he hates all boys and knights that sure. have a childhood growing up being a knight or being a fighter when he didn't have that same choice. His was out of, you know, his childhood turning into a fighter was more like Arya turning into, you know, a a fighter and having to learn how to you know be on the road it was out of necessity it wasn't out of like he just got to he didn't get to go squire for anyone he didn't get to he he ended up in the sack of king's landing for the promise of some food Mm -hmm. you know yeah i would have been pretty mad though like 
if things went down as they did in the original outline. Like, that was a trolly-ass move, right? Where Joffrey mm-hmm. ends up actually, I think, killing Robb Stark and... Especially since you know his prowess and him up here. I'm going to lead a guard to go kill your brother. You couldn't lead a fucking sheep to the water. I don't know. He, he's yeah, so an imbecile. The Red Wedding. Slightly more less infuriating? I don't know. No. <laughs> Sansa thinks on how she could shove Joffrey off of the parapet. Right there. 70, 80 feet down. But the hound interrupts her thoughts. He kneels between her and Joffrey, which I think is really interesting imagery, especially because between is italicized here. So it highlights the incredulity that a man of Sandor's station and size would come between the king and his betrothed, who he's having beat currently, right? Like, Barristan, take notes, first off. (laughs) I'm not saying that Sandor is like the paragon picture of eloquent gentleness here, but he at least tried to soften her blow, both verbally as you discussed, Eliana, and physically. He dabs softly at her lip to keep the blood off, and it doesn't really say what he dabbed with, but I'm willing to bet it was probably maybe with his cloak, a body part, like his I'm sorry, I don't... The girl has suffered enough. The moment was gone. Sansa lowered her eyes. Thank you, she said when he was done. She was a good girl and always remembered her courtesies. So, oh my god. Mm, you are a good girl, baby. And that's how and it ends. That's it. It is, but before we get too far into our Sansa outro, we have a lightning round of what we're missing between the end of Sansa 6 and, of course, the end of A Game of Thrones. We haven't gotten to do this in a bit. So, what we missed what happens after Sansa ends. And we are going to go full out here and talk about a couple other chapters just to give you the full picture. So here's the race from this to the end of the book. Daenerys 9. Awakened from awful nightmares, Danny learns her child did not survive and Drogo is comatose, albeit alive. Blood magic has cost her terribly and she later has to smother her husband with a pillow to put him out of his misery. In Tyrion 9, the Lannister loss at Riverrun creates tensions for the officers. Tywin gives Tyrion some insider info after he dismisses his officers and sends him to King's Landing to be Hand of the King and to stop Joffrey from ruining everything. Tyrion plans to take Shay with him just to spite his father. That works out really well for him. In the yeah, end. totally. Goes great. Maybe listen to your parents, I guess, even if they're Tywin. <gasps> Jamie did, and he's doing great. He's doing fantastic. They're all doing great. Give him a hand. Hey! Was that all I was? A sword hand? <laughs> John 9. Ready to obtain vengeance by joining Rob's cause, John attempts to desert. But his friends catch him outside of Molestown and bring him back. John, what are you doing at Molestown? J.R. Mormont knew where John was the entire time, but convinces John to stay in the watch going on arranging with him beyond the wall. Ooh. Field trip. Come on, the magic school bus. In Cattle and Eleven, returning to River Run for the first time in years, Kat sees her sickly father. She finds Rob in the Godswood praying with his bannerman, and Rob calls a war council to plan their next move and which king to support. Great John Umber declares Rob the only king he needs to follow, and the rest join in chanting, 
the king in the north. The king in the north. The king in the, the north. The king in the north. Daenerys 10. Daenerys meets resistance when she attempts to lead the Dothraki and as night falls, burns her husband with her three dragon eggs. By morning break, she is unburnt, nursing three baby dragons. And one burnt daddy. So this puts us at our A Game of Thrones Sansa Stark outro, and we will keep it so light because A Clash of Kings is only going to get heavier when we start that up next week. I think there's a lot we can talk about when it comes to Sansa Stark here that we've mentioned roughly, but there's a lot that's happened over these last six chapters that I really want to touch on, like Sansa losing her wolf and what that means to the story. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that we've read, not just with Sansa, but also with Ned, right? Especially Ned disengaging from her and from her formal education. Mm-hmm. Ned sticks Sansa with Septimordane and doesn't check in on her because Septimordane should be capable of raising a young woman, right, from a noble house. Allegedly. Allegedly. Instead of watching over both of his daughters closely in the capital, a brand new city, brand new huge world, he loses himself in King's Landing, while Sansa loses herself a little bit too in the southern culture. Yes, I think there's a lot here that we've like kind of discussed in like some of those Ned chapters, but it's absolutely that. I know that people talk about how the wolves are tied to the storyline, like because Lady's dead, it means Sansa will die. I don't think it necessarily means mm-hmm. that. I think that in many ways it shows that turn from Sansa. Sansa storyline, like, she's still going to be acting a lady, but it's it's that dismantling of what it means to be a lady, right? It's a really strong deconstruction, and it also shows that she was able to survive without her wolf, mm-hmm. whereas Rob died with his. Well, maybe if he had kept the wolf with him. You know? Yeah, maybe if he'd listened. Same with John. I don't know. If only someone told them that. If only someone just kept the dogs around. Like, Eliana, you would have been perfect for that. I'm like, hell no! My dog's coming with me, for sure. I also think there's something really interesting in how Sansa turns into, obviously, a glorified hostage, mm-hmm. right? Uh, compared to Theon. Theon goes home to try to win back his daddy after being a lifer in the Winterfell cell blocks, right? And he realizes, after that goes horribly wrong, that he lost his real dad in the wars, aka the Septa Baylor. And he had it pretty okay in the end. Like, yeah, it sucked, but it turns out so does your real family. And also food and toes are nice, right? Yeah. Like those are I like those things. I don't know about you. Do you want your toes? Do you like food? Someone recently thought that like they looked down and they're like, Oh, it looked like you didn't have toes for a second. I'm like, Yeah, uh no. I I would die. I clearly have toes. I, that's how I'm keeping my balance right now as I stand here as a person. Yeah, you would just fall forward. Yeah, right? I'm sure you could learn to... I mean, Theon has to, right? You you could learn to do it, but it's not... You have to be on the balls of your feet, it's I guess. I think you just, like, no. Yeah. Sansa loses her family while she's in King's Landing, and she realizes she took home for granted while she's held hostage, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, Jane Poole's storyline is... Ex- through Sansa's and Theon's, which I think is so important. Uh, the the theme of identity, the theme of Jane wanting to be a Stark and Theon always wanting to be a Stark and both never being capable of. 
that exploration and seeing the shadow of Jane as a, a Stark sister as we get later in the books is just so good and it's so sad. It's so haunting. There's also a lot of, first of all, the way you describe the storyline kind of reminds me of the, the second Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Hmm. Do you see that? Maybe? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah he, he might have been your father, but he wasn't your daddy. I don't know. Yeah, like Yondu. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, not that Ned and Theon... Ned Stark as Yondu? Yeah, not that Ned and Theon ever had moments like that, but... No, yeah. It's what I felt when you brought that up. But it's also a lot of uh, Sansa learning to, right, re-embrace her Stark identity, and then Theon, one of the greatest moments, and we've mentioned this before, in any in the entirety of the book series, right, is that end of that Asha chapter where he goes, it's me, Theon. I remembered my name. And you're like, oh my god, he did it! Like, Yeah, you're like, yeah, boy, my squid son. Yeah, and it, it's a lot. It's That's something that they both have. I mean, it's just like Jamie's line, you know, Sansa Stark is my one last chance at honor. And then Theon thinking about Jane and how like she mm. should look to any other man to be saved right now, but then he doesn't. Because when can a man be brave? Mm-hmm. When he's truly afraid. I do think it's interesting, though, that you've, like... I don't know why I've never really thought about it, that... Of course we think about how both Sansa and Theon are suffering, right? They're at the hands of people, mm-hmm. but... The way, you know, as you've pointed out, their situations mirror each other very much, and it's through both of their POVs that we get that closest study of... Two of the most heinous people in the books. Right. You get Ramsay. You get Joffrey. You get all of that. It's uh, it's very much so. I mean, very much so. They are cameras to a lot of events. But their insights are what are so important. I mean, Sansa's insights and her internal monologues and her thoughts and her figuring things out politically as a 11, 12 year old is just it, it's what propels us through these chapters. Mm-hmm. And hashtag worm lips. Worm lips. Hashtag worm facts. <laughs> worm facts. There's a... Do you know earthworms aren't really native to the US? Or, I did not know that. Where are they from? Um, I don't know. Probably Europe or some shit. I don't know. One of the mods said this to me once. And then I made auto moderate. I don't know. I made like this bot constantly say, say the same worm fact all the time. Anyway... <laughs> Oh my gosh. The end of a Game of Thrones also, of course, uh, signals Sansa's journey back to the north, like both internally and externally. Like she's yearning to go back home as like all the Stark children want to do because that's how you feel when things are shitty. You're like, I want to go home. And Sansa, so much of like her a Game of Thrones story is about her yearning to be this southern lady. And then she learns that like the south actually kind of sucks and its songs are just full of lies. And as shown in this chapter, she stands on this, like, other balcony, the second balcony or third balcony, I don't fucking know, really, really high up. And she looks north and north and north back to Winterfell, and that's where she starts drawing strength from again, like, the north and that identity. And in many ways, like, this chapter is the beginning of her tracing back her father's steps. Like, we talked before about how Sansa's learning to rule or wanting to rule, making people love her as they had... For Ned is something that she learned from Ned. Um, 
as opposed to having them fear her, which is a very Tywin and Lannister way of ruling people. But the language in this chapter, like Sansa's last chapter in A Game of Thrones, actually greatly reflects the language in Ned's last chapter, Ned 15. And it shows how similar the daughter that he distanced himself from is to him. So, for example, in... Edward 15 and in Sansa 6 we have similar language when it comes to like that setting and darkness like Ned thinks there was no window no bed not even a slop bucket slop bucket once the door had slammed shut he had seen no more the dark was absolute he had as well been blind and it's similar in Sansa's opening right uh in the tower room at the heart of Maker's Holdfast Sansa gave herself to the darkness there's like more shit in here and time blurs for both of them, like when Ned's down there in the dungeons, lines are, For how long he could not say, there was no sun and no moon. For Sansa, she was in bed, curled up tight, her curtains drawn, and she could not have said if it was noon or midnight. And you have some similar language and events, but like, um, similar sounds and sensory uh, imagery, but there are different circumstances, like this idea of footsteps and how that shows up in these chapters, like Ned saying, Ned was half asleep when the footsteps came down the hall. At first he thought he dreamt them. It had been so long since he had heard anything but the sound of his own voice. Whereas for Sansa, it's when they finally came for her in truth, Sansa never heard their footsteps. And there's a lot more of this, we'll link an essay, like, not really an essay, a fucking thing that I wrote that compares this language. But this idea of the footsteps, I kind of find this interesting because, like, Sansa thinks she dreamt of footsteps on the tower stair, an ominous scraping of leather on stone as a man climbs slowly toward her step bedchamber step by step. Though this is supposed to be, like, I don't know, about ill and pain and death. A man, I don't know, for me, when I think of a man climbing a stair in a tower, I kind of think of, like, Ned climbing to the Tower of Joy to meet Lyanna. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love that so much. We'll definitely have to link that below. That's a great piece that you wrote. Uh, it's crazy seeing essays that we wrote. Wish we'd write them yeah, more. Yeah, we, we write um, things. <laughs> we don't write things. That would be a constant state of writing, which we do not do. Yeah, I do think that there are a lot of very purposeful parallels. Of course, as we get into a storm of swords, we're going to see Sansa catapulted into the veil. Uh, just like Ned once was as a youngster himself, youngster. same age. So a youngster, young Ned. Uh, so I think there's a lot to pull off of, especially with these chapters being framed similarly in the language. This chapter references Joffrey's name day, and it keeps asking what Sansa got Joffrey, which, of course, he doesn't deserve anything ever. But it gives us a great setup for where we're going to pick up with Sansa's story in A Clash of Kings, Joffrey's name day. And the gift that she does give him is partial to her escape slash next capture. Yeah, it's kind of like how, what, the end of Storm sets up some of Jamie's what, feast storyline? You see that here, here with Sansa. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh my god, who does that? Who's like, oh, what did you get me for my birthday? Joffrey. Yeah, dude, he's the worst. He's also like that on top of the, I'm the king, like what? Yeah. It's like, uh, she's a prisoner. She doesn't have fucking money right now. How's she going to get you? I That is also a question I have. How does he expect her to get him anything? Also, she's like in the bedroom all day. I got you this curtain 
I got you this. Here's a piece of my hair that was laying on the floor. Yeah, I got you this rotten food that I haven't eaten the past few days. That would be a great gift. He deserves it. Just shove it in his face. Yeah. Smush it. Fuck a Lannister. Fucking hate the Lannisters. You can at me about it. I hate the Lannisters. We have so much to go into next week in A Clash of Kings, Sansa's intro and the first chapter. I'm so excited for that. I'm excited every... We've said this every single time, I think, where you come across a new chapter. We're like, I'm so excited for this chapter. That's how I feel about this yeah, POV. Yeah, well, they're all good. Yeah, that's true. They're literally all good. They are all good. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. It's true. They actually are all good. Um, so join us next week, friends. Yeah, we're going to cover episode 23, Sansa intro to A Clash of Kings, and Sansa 1, Clash of Kings. So do not forget to subscribe to us on social media at Girls Gone Canon on Twitter. And also send us an email if you're feeling spicy. That is girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yeah, we love getting these emails. And as you guys know, we read them aloud. Someone didn't, people didn't send them needless emails. This, whatever. Anyways, and also <laughs> subscribe to us so that you can know when we have new episodes out, right? Subscribe to us on Podbean. On iTunes, where you can also leave us a review. Um, not one star. Not that it's for me. It's for. I mean, Aliana. you've been here like at twenty-two episodes. I assume that like you're if you're here still. We're not one star, right? If you're yeah, we're here. at least two. You know, we're twenty-two. We 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 deserve yeah. at least two stars. Two, two, two. You know, and you can also subscribe to us on uh, Google Play and on Stitcher. And a cast. And of course, if you're interested in becoming a Patreon, big shout out to our patrons. You can hit us up at patreon.com slash girls gone canon. We have tiers starting at $1. So please go look it up. They're all named after horses, which are the best things. Mm-hmm. And the $1, $1 subscribers this week will get one or two worm facts woven into the notes that you get. And also, we are releasing this week for higher-tiered patrons, um, $40 and above, some of our pre-recorded banter. Yeah, just a pre-episode Skype meeting where we just kind of talk about food and characters and life and a song of ice and fire and get in the zone for the episode. So be sure to check that out. And of course, never fear patrons that signed up before we went live and are waiting for their sticker their bell lost deserve better sticker those stickers are being printed as we record so yep it is soon enough it is shipped we should receive it by the time this releases to the public and then we will send them all out i was gonna say you guys get a really cool we spent a lot of time deliberating on the color of the envelope that we were gonna send you yeah we're not gonna tell you what color it is you're just gonna have to be surprised as always, I'm Chloe. I am one of your hosts. You can find me on the internet as at Lies and Arbor on Twitter and Tumblr, and also as Drunk A Song of Ice and Fire History on YouTube and Twitter. And I'm Eliana, another one of your hosts. And you can find me as Glass Table Girl on the Maester Monthly podcast and on the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. Thanks so much, guys. Goodbye.